I went for a walk in the forest and came face to face with Krishnamurti in the forest. And we looked at each other for a long time in the eyes. And he said to me, you know too much. Stop. Now you start, you see. It was, it was freedom from the known, as it were. And that, that was the super nice, ever interesting, and always immaculately dressed Prince Stash Klosowski de Rola. Stash is an adventurer, explorer, connoisseur, educator, musician, actor, aristocrat. He's the son of the famed French artist Balthus, and so much more. And while your friends don't define you, they certainly provide context. And Stash came up with and was, uh, is, close friends with the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Sid Barrett, Anita Pallenberg, Vince Taylor, Ike Turner, Donovan, Romina Power, Lee McCluskey, Jodorowsky, Fellini, Kenneth Anger, more, more than friends, he collaborated with and worked with all these people and so many others who collectively, well, they crafted a global cultural revolution. I don't think I'm overstating that. And in this episode of Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, you'll hear behind the scenes stories about so many of our icons. And we'll talk with Stash about his lifelong explorations into alchemical wisdom music, and, and so much more. Um, oh, and at the end, you'll get to hear two in-progress, unreleased tracks that Stash is working on right now, one, one of which is destined for his Padmasambhava Psychedelic Ballet Project. That Just keep listening. That'll all make sense. And it won't, which is the best part. So turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Stash Darola. Oh, and I'm your host, Todd Brilliant. And away we go. Prince, Prince Stash Klosowski Darola, how are you today? Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Really, really thrilled to have you on here. Uh, just so many stories that we can talk about today. So many things. Just a wide-ranging conversation. I'm, I'm excited to get right into it. Let's just get into your history coming up at a time that was a world changer, the early 60s, the mid 60s, you were in the center of it. You were over in Europe, uh, you were in England when, when the people who changed global music and art culture were really coming into being. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, the, the real change was being... Uh, we have to go back up a little bit to, um, in 1959, I was meant to finish school, having dropped out and then having been uh, sort of forced back in. Uh, I, I had this fantastic education with a private tutor, was a writer, etc. And uh, it was very, very 18th century uh, as opposed to the, the being crammed full of useless information by teachers. When I went back to school uh, in an American school in Rome in 1959, I was meant to do my last year of high school. 
And the curriculum was extremely boring. I mean, it was, seemed to be for a sort of kindergarten type of thing. It was not challenging intellectually in any uh, way, shape, or form. So I was thinking, oh, my God, uh, you know, there I have to endure all that. And fortunately, in those days, Via Veneto uh, in, at the center of Rome was where Fellini had just finished filming the Dolce Vita. And what a film. Uh, uh, an assistant to the great director, Lupino Visconti, came up to my mother and I and, uh, sitting at the terrace. And, and this Polish assistant said, are you, are you an actor? And, and I said, no, no, no. I said, you're so expressive. Well, do you, would, you, would you like to be? And I, was, I had promised my parents to go, to, to, be, to go straight and to finish school. And I said, no, no. And uh, the man insisted and said, well, you know, we represent this company. And, uh, you know, would you be interested in trying out? And no, 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 I'm going to school. So... My mother, he came back uh, uh, several times over several evenings, and my mother said, why don't you try it? And that's how I got to drop out of school and make a very long story short. I ended up as a 17-year-old at the 13th Gun Film Festival in 1960 with uh, Fellini uh, when, wow. when the Dolce Vita won, uh, won the Palme d'Or. And uh, so that was, in a sense, my entry into a show business world, which uh, soon had me living at Alain Delon's uh, uh, country house in, um, in uh, and, you know, hanging out with people like Romy Schneider and all these movie stars and so on, and so forth, and Jasmine and lots of lots of dancers lots of musicians in in the paris blues period of um, you know which was so vibrant a scene in those days and then i went to america for the first time in 1962 and okay. worked in um, with armed with a from New York, armed with a letter of introduction from the famous French film director, Marc Allegre, who had gone with André Gide to the Congo uh, to do the Voyage au Congo and all that. I had been his actor and his assistant, and I had a letter of introduction to Sam Goldwyn Jr. And through Sam Goldwyn, I had extraordinary Hollywood experiences and eventually uh, returned, to, returned to Europe and found myself at a loose end in terms of searching for a suitable uh, job. And my old friend, the rock and roll star Vince Taylor, said, well, you've always been in the music, why don't you join my band? And that's how, in 64, I found myself joining that band uh, at a time when uh, we were all evolving towards a mod from a rocker's very much a black leather rock and roll type of thing. It became a much more of a mod band. And 
we were very much influenced by, uh, obviously, by the English music, their interpretation of, of rock and roll and so on, and, and their creative impulse. And we went frequently to England, etc. We were still based in France until, and in fact, in um, 65, that's when we coat up the bill at the Paris Olympia during an entire weekend, uh, the Eastern weekend, we played all these gigs against the Rolling Stones. And my friendship with the Stones, especially with Brian Jones, dates from that, that very time. In a way, it was, uh, you know, I drifted from uh, living in France to eventually uh, living more in England. But that was, uh, it had started with, with being in this not truly Parisian world, much more of an expat world in Paris, in the music scene, which was, you know, composed of a lot of African-American uh, musicians, uh, a lot of beatnik poets and, you know, a folk scene, Place de la Contrescarpe, and uh, a lot of Ing Anglo and American musicians. When you, it was an interesting choice of words a moment ago. You said that you, uh, with Vince Taylor, it was Vince Taylor and the Playboys, correct? The name of the band? Yeah, well, Vince, yeah. Taylor, and, Vince Taylor and the Playboys was the first incarnation. Okay, but Taylor. you said that you played... You didn't say that you played with the Rolling Stones. You said you played against the Rolling Stones. Now, that's something that isn't, that's not something in the States. Usually you have a headliner, a co-headliner, you know, opening bands. So were you saying that you guys were sort of competing against one another on the main yes, stage, because, right? Yes, uh, because, I mean, they had, uh, they had, uh, they had only had their first LP and, uh, out at that time. And we were only aware of their music in that way. And we liked it, actually, but we thought we could do as well, if not much better than they could. And Vince Taylor had been a star when they were still uh, beginning. So mm -hmm. he had this sort of superior complex. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was very amusing because there must have been 10 or 12 acts on the bill, something like that, including a magician. Then we would close up the, uh, those uh, acts, played one, maximum two songs. There was a band called um, Rocky Roberts and the Airedales who had a measure of fame. They, I think they, they were able to do three songs. And that was the most uh, that was allowed to these uh, to these undercards, as it were. Right. Uh, you know, and then there was this magician who did who did magical tricks. You know, had a, with doves and a top hat and the whole thing. And then we came on and did our full set. And then there was an intermission. Then the stone set up. And they played, you know, and, and closed the show. But what was interesting was that we, the Stones had been followed by hordes of their adoring girl fans to Paris. 
And we were very keen. It was very exciting for us to play for these screamers, you know, and to tease them and all that kind of thing. And we won them over and we, we got fabulous reception. And while we were playing, the stones were actually in the wings. They weren't in their dressing rooms. They were watching every move we made. And when we have told this story many times over, but it bears repeating because uh, we were walking off the stage, uh, drenched in sweat, tremendous applause, screams galore and all that. Vince Taylor was stopped by Mick Jagger, who tartly asked him, he said, you've been on? And Vince just brushed right past him and said, no, I've been rehearsing like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then at the same time, Brian Jones uh, came and we locked eyes. He smiled at me and we shook hands and that was it. I said, okay, I'm taking you out. And I was with, in fact, I was with Anita Pallenberg, uh, who mm -hmm. you know, would become his girlfriend later on that year. But she was a casual girlfriend of mine. And, and Brian himself was with this other girl called Zuzu, who was very sweet and a great ex, also an ex-girlfriend. And everybody adored her. So she was very cute and everything. And so, you know, Brian was, this is how this whole connection to the, to the English uh, scene proper began in our band was was a famous drummer who played with everybody in British rock called Bobby Woodman Clark and Bobby was perhaps the first drummer of the rock and roll era at least in England to play with double bass drums and he was greatly admired by such figures as uh, Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts. And in fact, the first Rolling Stone I ever met was weeks before that first encounter with the, the band themselves was Charlie Watts, who came to, to stay uh, with Bobby and to, we spent time smoking joints and listening to jazz records at Bobby's uh, Pigalle flat. Uh, in Paris. So you come in, you're there in the 60s, but backing it up, just backing it up a lot, actually, you were born into a family of, well, your father, let's just say, your father was Balthus, the, the great modern artist and painter. And, and I would think it's fair to say a bit of a rebel on his own. Yeah, absolutely. His output, he, he did not bend to pressures, and he, he stayed with, with what he believed in, with his passions. So growing up, you grew up in the household of a legend. I think it's fair to say that your father's a legendary artist. Was that ever, when you were coming out in your own creative world, was that ever something that was a shadow for you, or was it a launching pad? Neither. Uh, it was a, a shadow in becoming, you know, I had the um, possible ability to develop as a, as a painter myself mm -hmm. and um, as a draftsman. But when we were very young, our father had suffered from 
his early 20s of being in military, uh, French military service in Morocco, he contracted malaria and throughout his life he would have bouts of malaria. And once when he had, he, we were alone, my brother and I, we were very small and we were somehow were alone with him and he was not doing well at all. He got very uh, bizarre and he said, if he said with clenched teeth and a lot of anger, he said, you know, and frustration, he said, if ever one of you uh, becomes a painter, I will cut off your fingers with my head, you know, myself. And we were so, you know, it was wartime and we, you know, there was these, that appalling Hoffman book called the Strubelbeter, which nobody now remembers, uh, which is a horrifying uh, book for children with especially Teutonic perverse form of cruelty in uh, disguised as morality, and uh, where there is a mother who admonishes her child that if he goes on sucking his thumb, uh, a tailor would come in and cut his thumb with tailoring scissors. And uh, the kid pays no heed to this, what he sees as a stupid uh, thing, to a story to impress him. The mother leaves and he goes on sucking his thumbs and a dreadful tailor with long flowing hair jumps across two, two double pages, uh, you know, and cuts with his tailoring scissors, not one, but both thumbs. Oh. To, the, to the poor little kid. And when the mother comes back and he's bleeding from having amputated uh, both uh, thumbs, right. the mother says, see, I told you so. I mean, she's extremely, she doesn't have wow. any sympathy for his blight. And <laughs> so we thought, well, in this world, of, <laughs> this crazy world of the adults, that's, that's how it goes. <laughs> happens so, our father's feverish threat seemed like, and so we refused. I remember in boarding school, we refused. We, uh, in school in general, we would refuse to go to art classes, and we, you know, we said our father doesn't want either, doesn't want us to do it, and so on. And uh, they thought, oh my God, you know. These kids have been abused, you know, like this. Did you ever go back to your to your father as an adult and and tell him what that comment did? No, he 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 was um, he was later on. He said, you know, you know, he saw a couple of things I'd done and said, you know, you can paint if you want to. And I and I was very sort of dismissive of the whole thing. And once, uh, much, much later in the last years of his life, I'd done a drawing which happened to be pinned on a window. And my father said, who did that? And I sort of looked at him a little bit sheepishly and said, I did. And he said, oh, I'm glad. And I said, oh. why are you glad? And he said, I'm glad that my children have talent. Wow. That How did was, that feel? You know, but it was too. It was much too much of a 
tool. This is a very lengthy way of replying to your former query that it was, it cast a very, very long shadow of my father's reputation, especially as he got more and more famous. Mm -hmm. Began in, in 56 with this Life magazine spread and, uh, during the Suez crisis and uh, was followed by a one-man short at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And, you know, it kept rising uh, in fame all the time. And he was, um, he became the head of, the French Academy in Rome in 61, appointed by uh, Audrey Malraux, the famous writer, who was um, General de Gaulle's Minister of Culture, etc. Did your parents, or your, did they monitor your, your bouncing around the world as, as part of your, your musical career? Was that something that they approved of, or were they, were they hands-off? What, what was that like for them, watching you out there in the middle of it all? They didn't, um, you know, they were slightly sarcastic about the whole thing, but, um, you know, they weren't, they said, oh, you can do that sort of thing. They were, my father was much more critical of our style, didn't have the, that are what is so admired today in our eclectic putting clothes together, he thought lacked coherence and was a form of, aestheticism he didn't really approve of. But, uh, you know, and the, the whole long hair stance was not something that they initially, they tolerated it, but they didn't. Uh, they weren't, they were neither proud of it, nor were they uh, overly censorious about it. They were rather sarcastic, I would say. I read a quote from you that speaks to that, the long hair, style, the clothing style that resonates today as much as ever. It was this, you said, the climate of those golden days that mesmerized some of the youth of today do not take into account the climate of hatred, the fear and loathing that we inspired in the hearts of straight society. It is well worthy of note to recall that somehow one's long hair and strange clothes were perceived as such a threat that they warranted unprovoked violence all modern freaks owe us a large debt of gratitude as we weathered the jibes, were persecuted by the authorities, and as often as not, had to fight against all manner of louts offended by one's appearance. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, something I hadn't really thought of. When you look back at these pictures of, of the, the dandies of the 60s, it just looks like the whole world was like that. You know, the, the stories of being attacked and persecuted for having such interesting style. They're not told. Can you, can you tell any? Well, yeah, I mean, in 65, again, I flew back from America and arrived at Geneva Airport and um, customs officer, the customs officers were so outraged and shocked by my appearance that one said, why don't they take, they, they thought we were American, I was American, and uh, they said, uh, why don't they take all these guys and send them to Vietnam? And this oh. other cop outraged said, well, if my son looked like that, I'd kill him with my own hands. You know, and on the streets of, in the main street of Geneva, 
I remember the, the entire street went into freeze frame. They all looked, and these people were looking at me as if I was a complete alien. You know, what were you wearing? Give, 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 give us a sense. It wasn't really the clothes. It was the long hair and the fact that I had one earring that seemed to really provoke them. Ooh. <laughs> and they said, this girl said, oh, you know, in our century, you know, this look, I mean, it seemed to really provoke stupefaction at best. And then, um, then it became, for it started to really appeal. The girls sort of loved it. Uh, and, uh, and that provoked further hatred from uh, the male. Uh, are you a boy or are you a girl was the famous taunt. And uh, people would shout at you, why don't you have your hair cut? And all that kind of thing, ridiculous stuff like that. So they were threatened. They, they were threatened. They were your competitors. It was, a, it was a constant battle with the straight world. And that's why we adopted extreme attitudes of defiance and decided that we would do all manner of things to offend the bourgeois mentality and all that. When you say straight world, are, do you, you're meaning square as, as more than you are referring to sexuality. Yes, uh, the, 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 those, if you will, what we, we called the straight world, everybody wasn't a freak. Right. They were squares, if you will, but, you know, the squares, <clears throat> the Appalachian squares had already uh, aged a bit. So it, to us, it was the straights against uh, the freaks. And we, were, we considered ourselves freaks. And was that something that came out with the flourishing of, of mod culture, or was it sort of already existent when you were doing your rock and roll thing? It, it really came as an ad. Do you remember the Hard Day's Night where George Harrison really didn't have a very long hair, but I mean, it seemed extremely long in those days. And there was this, this attitude, you know, that, uh, you know, they, they were trying to, there was part of the so-called uh, straight world or the square world was trying already to see how they could co-opt that stylish revolution by designing for it. And if you recall in, in Hard Day's uh, Night, there is this guy trying to persuade George Harrison that he should like these shirts that have been made, you know, and, and George says, no, I don't like them. They're dead grotty, he says. They're dead grotty. And that was, that was this whole thing, you know, that, that people wanted you to endorse their version of what they thought was cool. This is, this is reflected in the lyrics of Satisfaction. So it's really hard to have a talk with you without spending a little bit of time diving into your friendship with Brian Jones, Rolling Stones founder, the legend, the talent, the artist. What's it been? After 50 years since Brian's passing, how much of the, the sort of real Brian Jones, the Brian Jones that you know, is left in the public 
in the public archive, in the public eye, is there really any honest record of him out there? Uh, well, yes. Uh, the, the, first of all, there's the there's his essential musical contributions to com the compositions. First of all, there is that amazing his musical contributions to the cover versions of songs that the Rolling Stones made their own as they recorded them. You know, all sorts of great rhythm and blues tracks became a rather than aping the styles of the African-American originals, they, they gave something original to them, which was really, really good. And it, they, they outclassed all the competition by their ability to, to take blues songs and improve upon them, if, if it can be said to, to uh, such a way. You know, their version of uh, Little Red Rooster, which is incredibly enhanced by Brian Jones's playing, is, was a number one hit, which is uh, a first in the history of recording charts. And then when Andrew Waldham very wisely got Big uh, Jagger and Keith Richards into a room and famously, famously decided that they should try and write songs, which eventually they did developed a knack for it. And so here comes one of the first distortions. People now say, well, why wasn't Brian involved in that time? Forgetting mm -hmm. that as the Stones rose in fame, they all had their own lives. Brian had been, you know, from an early age, produced a string of illegitimate children with, with a number of uh, young girls and, and so on. And he, at the time, lived with, uh, at the time that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who were living in the same quarters with Andrew Oldham, who was also a young guy, a young friend's parents, and the girlfriend in question, and the mother of his, of his child, was uh, Linda Lawrence, who is now uh, the singer and great... Bard, great friend of mine, uh, Donovan, and uh, she, and eventually, uh, and Linda and her parents lived in a very comfortable house in Windsor where Brian was ensconced. And that's why uh, there was a physical sort of distance uh, in where they dwelt. In due course, Mick and Keith uh, developed this knack of writing songs. Brian was very much of a perfectionist, and he might have uh, been able to write in that idiom had he stuck with it. He certainly had the capacity, but he was also very quickly bored with things he couldn't do right away. And okay. because he had that facility to really play any instrument, uh, that he laid eyes on and get something fascinating out of it. And therefore, this 
musical genius, you have to call it that, was applied to uh, shaping those uh, early in the Rolling Stones hits into immortal uh, songs, Painted Black, uh, or, you know, Brian plays the sitar that he picked up and he plays it with such flair that, you know, no sitar master could have come up with that because, you know, the, a sitar master would have a different approach to the thing and wouldn't have thought of doing, of applying uh, a musique andalouse type of uh, thing to, you know, and create that immortal riff, as it were. And on many songs, he was the, uh, you know, you could say that his contributions were, in a sense, he was much more the creator of those songs than the, the writers that is credited to. That doesn't mean that he sought to have a credit for it. He saw that as his function. So the um, kind of artiste maudit, uh, the accursed artist who is the victim of his peers and of, his, of people in his band, begins and people uh, paint him as a hapless victim of the shenanigans of his bandmate, which is totally erroneous. You know, everybody had their own uh, style and perspective, and and bands are very incestuous. There's all kinds of rivalries over girls, over little resentments of, oh, you did this at one time, and very often in bands, you're not on speaking terms with your bandmates over some perceived slight. People have this kind of sugar candy view that you should all be, it's all brotherhood and so on. It is not. It's a very, it's very intense with young men, you know. And, there's, and it, with English bands, there's a lot of what is called uh, winding up. Winding up me is a tease is a fairly cruel form of teasing, which is a constant. Which makes it all the more remarkable that the Stones have stayed together so long, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean they stay together because they, you know, they they all have their own lives and they 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 get together because they enjoy playing the music together. But now the Rolling Stones are really, the original Rolling Stones are a trio, really. And, and uh, supplemented by Ronnie Wood, who now for decades has been a, a part of the band. And then they have Sidemen, who, who also played for a long time with them. But the people who came up from... Uh, well, Bill Wyman was not the original bass player. Dick Taylor then became the lead guitarist in The Pretty Things, was the original bass player. And Charlie Watts was almost, was the desired first drummer in the band. But he wasn't the first. There's another person about whom there are some real misconceptions. One of my favorite soul musicians, and you say that he was your musical mentor uh, and a good friend, Ike Turner. He, I, you know, Ike, there's a movie. What was the movie called? Uh, What's Love Got to Do What's With It? What's Love Got to Do With It? Doesn't paint the prettiest picture of Ike Turner. 
Anything there you care to clear up? Any? Do you have a, a counterpoint, yes. a counter perspective well, about Ike? You know, Ike was in trail, and he came out of trail, uh, broke, and uh, they made him. They gave him. Um, they gave him a fairly paltry sum of money, but was a lot of money to him coming out of jail and being broke, on condition that he he was not to say one word uh, against the treatment, against the way they would portray him in the film. And so in the end, uh, it was, you know, a devil's bargain because yes, the, the film became successful and this portrayal of an evil like I said, well, I'm not by any means claiming to be a saint, but really they've laid it on very thick. Also, you have to remember that obviously one, one forgets because suspension of disbelief when, when one is watching a film, but the film has a given playtime, you know, it's 90, 100 minutes, whatever, but however long, it's only a film, so it's a distillation of everything made, and it plays for the most, the most sensational type of effect possible. And so Ike was painted with a, with a very nasty tar brush, as it were. And there was a hint in the film when Tina first goes to uh, and and is in the presence of the band of how great the original music that they were playing mm -hmm. at the time how what a marvelous musician Ike was and um, you know how versatile and how he was an extraordinary man and and I had been laboring under a variety of uh, kind of complexes about my own musical abilities because I, you know, would say, would say, well, you know, Mick and I started to learn guitar together and he progressed and I didn't. I would, and, and I said, that's absolute nonsense. You've got to set all that aside. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. You've just got to make it your own. And these words and his encouragement made me develop my own guitar playing style and hands pick up a lot, lots more instruments. And to this day, I play music and credit both the spirit of Brian Jones and uh, the spirit of Ike Turner. That's fascinating to me. So you come up with, you played music with, you befriended uh, Brian Jones, the Beatles, uh, everybody else in the Stones, Donovan, uh, Sid Barrett, Vince Taylor, and on and on and on. Uh, just, you know, Yardbirds, Everly Brothers, could just keep going. Uh, that's interesting. That might be a little intimidating to come up and try to carve out your own musical career in that. And of all the people to, to release you, Ike Turner, I, I love that. I just love it. Was he just naturally gifted at, at recognizing the blocks in you energetically, musically? What was it about Ike that the rest of these folks couldn't do for you? Well, first of all, Ike was very, um, Ike appreciated the way that I was totally 
I wanted to do, you know, we, we never got to make a record together, which I wanted to do so much. I wanted to get to record Ike Live, and I came close to being able to do it, but in the end, it, it wasn't to be, which is very unfortunate. And because it, it was, uh, it would have been amazing. And I felt that, you know, a lot of people had recorded him the wrong way and so on. And, you know, you had to be able to say, no, don't sing in this range and not in that range and so on. Uh, there, there was a lot to be done uh, with Ike and the definitive uh, solo record uh, of Ike's wasn't recorded uh, and I, I felt that it could have been done. Um, anyway, it's one of those tragic things, you know, that uh, he left uh, and I didn't get to see him right before he left us. You released records years ago in the 60s, but you're still playing music. You, you went through I Helped You Out today, right now, sitar, is that correct? I played um, a lot of uh, guitar, a lot of electric sitar, and I recorded some tracks for a project on... Uh, Padma Sambhava was a, the sage who brought Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century, legendary sage who's a big, uh, uh, a major figure in Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, Padma Sambhava, I thought, how could you... Um, well, it started like this. I went, uh, Roland Bejar. The, the choreographer was a friend of the family's and invited me to come to his studio in Switzerland, in Lausanne. And while I was there, I saw this great, this very beautiful Japanese dancer. And I started to, inspired by her beauty, I thought, ooh, it would be interesting to do a psychedelic oriental ballet based on um, oriental forms of theater, you know, where in, there are many Japanese costumes and so on. There. The costumes are so elaborate that you need all these attendants to actually come on stage. They, they, they are part of the show and they hold the train and so on. And that's my thoughts spun into a psychedelic ballet about an episode of Padma Sambhava's uh, bringing Buddhism to Tibet and facing not human opposition, but uh, supernatural opposition from the local divinities. And, uh, and the whole idea was to, to design something which would be dance based on orig completely original music. It couldn't be ethnic music because this is all pre-Buddhist and so on. So I started to work on how you could play an electric instrument like the sitar uh, using 
open tunings and using a glass slide. And I came up with some very arresting uh, uh, tunes. And I've also now got a synthesizer that can, uh, I was trying to find the right uh, percussion tracks. And I, I now have the means to marry what my, my own compositions to uh, the rhythmic tracks that can be danced. And uh, in that context, oddly enough, there are people who are interested in doing a docu documentary about me and who've actually started to do it. And um, reading, uh, one of the collaborators was reading the Ugly Things article about me and said, oh, you, he asked me about the Padma Sambhava project. Mm -hmm. And I had done a couple of days before work for uh, some, another group of filmmakers who also want to do something about me and who are doing a, a film a documentary about the legendary Stardust Cowboy you know, who was a, uh, an, also an inspiration to David Bowie, you know, this, uh, and, and uh, they are doing a, in that context, they wanted to interview me because of uh, Vince Taylor being the inspiration to Ziggy Stardust. So, you know, it, it all uh, dovetailed into some very interesting things so that uh, a film about me wouldn't be just about the past, but what about, about the things that I'm currently uh, creatively involved with? That is, it, it occurred to me that some of the difficulties in producing uh, my psychedelic ballet could be resolved by the extraordinary animation techniques that are available today, so that one could one could get all these things together. Do you think we'll see that? Are we gonna? Do you have an animation team? I, I, I think it looks in very it looks very promising. Actually. Oh, that's great! I have also uh, developed something that I played last year at the Brian Jones tribute that Donovan headlined at Kenny Jones's Polo Grounds in England. All these bands came together and played stone songs in tribute to Brian Jones. And I was invited to play and I brought along my little synthesizer that can emulate a Baroque harpsichord playing mm. in, you know, modern instruments are in 440 and this, the old instruments, you couldn't have, you would have broken the strings if you'd uh, stretched them to 440. So it, it was 415, which is a whole different vibration. And I play in that idiom. I don't play uh, music from sheet music of dead composers. It just comes in that medium and I can sit at and improvise completely original music. And I have a, a CD of three of the tracks that I'm working on on, on this album with this amazing uh, 
uh, albino, albino engineer who is an Italian who worked in England and worked in Holland and so on, albino Frank, who's a fantastic uh, sound man. And he came to my castle of Monte Calvello and we, we recorded him with this very special sound from those rooms. And I have been trying, I've played, I've done the experiment of having this, these three tracks on constant play when I'm, I drive my car. It's wonderful because it's just like listening to somebody else's work. I hear from a mutual friend that you're a boxing fan. Ah, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) All right, so I gotta ask, all-time favorite boxers, who thrilled you the most? Well, Muhammad Ali, of course. Right. Muhammad Ali, for sure. The money man is also somebody who is totally fascinating. What is it about boxing for you? What is it? Not, not everybody gets it. it. It seems, I mean, it is a blood sport, right? But there's a, there's a beauty to it. What is it that attracted you to boxing? I don't know. I, I, I boxed in, in, in uh, boarding school. It was one of those early things. I, I, you know, we got boxing gloves when we were 10 and my brother and I used to box and we, we thought it was an interesting thing. It was very exotic in those days. It was very hard to see boxing matches. There's something about it which I, you know, it's a, such a challenge and such a difficult and it's very much like the part of Bushido, you know, this warrior's mm-hmm. uh, ethos. And now it's, it's being largely usurped by mixed martial arts. Do you have any taste for that? Mixed martial arts is quite interesting. I haven't seen, I haven't watched a lot of mixed martial arts, I must say. It's, uh, but uh, it was an interesting concept to see whether you could, uh, whether a boxer could defy uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and all mm-hmm. these type of things. They've had to impose a lot of rules because it became, uh, you know, it, it came out from, uh, from an underground of uh, people eager to bet on a gladiator form of sport. But that, that's, uh, there's, there's an interesting, perverse, bloodthirsty, streak in people's mentality that they want to see bare knuckle fighting and all that kind you know the fight clubs type of thing Mm -hmm. and to to gamble upon these things it's like all these blood sports they go way back these blood sports go way back speaking of going way back you know you guys you're listening i bet you didn't miss the fact that that stash casually dropped mention of his castle in Italy. Did you miss that? You didn't miss that. So you have a castle in Italy that's quite a storied building, is it not? Well, it is. uh, It started life as the last fortress for the last king of the Lombards, and so has very ancient elements. And in it endured as a fortress through the Middle Ages, and of course, the early Renaissance in the 1400s saw it transformed as a Renaissance palace. That means that they walled up the old windows 
and open new windows in the, cla in the classical Renaissance form. Uh, they got some very famous artists to come and do some extraordinary frescoes. And in fact, the earliest frescoes, we know nothing about the actual artists. What is interesting is that they have a hermetic, that is an alchemical significance, which is very arresting and makes uh, the 15th century rooms in that castle what is called a philosopher's dwelling because, you know, they, they reflect upon the ancient art of alchemy, of which I wrote uh, several books about that, that whole uh, thing. It was also a passion of mine from childhood. And my father came along some 50 years ago, and he, no, more than 50 years ago, my father was brought there by a, by a friend of his called Prince Giovanni del Drago. And my father fell in love with the place, but the owner at the time didn't want to sell, although she didn't have the funds and couldn't obtain the funds to uh, restore re and the know-how to restore the place. My father then acquired it, and when I first went there, I thought, oh my God, this place is appalling. It's massive, and it looks, it was in such sorry shape at the time um, that I thought it was an impossible task and that my father had gone completely mad. But he, uh, with his, the team that he had used when he became head of the French Academy at Villa Medici, uh, they restored this castle and in took three years and uh, suddenly there was it was a very spectacular uh, place where he devised a way of dealing with large surfaces which would be barren of decoration that means no tapestries no paintings and he invented a technique which he pioneered at Villa Medici of uh, creating a sort of marble effect that many people have attempted to copy, but none have uh, actually managed to, to do it. And to this day, teams of uh, restorers and specialists come periodically to study Monte Galvello, which remains uh, authentically uh, a work of my father's in that sense, the treatment of the walls. And are in keeping, I have to add, which are in keeping with the tonalities in the frescoes, so that there's a harmony, it harmonizes, every room harmonizes with the tonalities of the frescoes. And the most modern part of the castle mm -hmm. is late 16th century, so late 1500s. Uh, that's the modern one. So does it get cold and drafty? Yes, it's extremely cold and, and therefore unlivable in the winter. Is there anything modern in there? Do you have microwave ovens in the kitchen there, or is it still just big open pits? And, and... No, there's a modern How kitchen. How do you mix that? There's yeah. a modern kitchen in, but the, there is also, um, there's also an old, there, there, there are some rooms where, where they used to bake bread in the middle. Ages and so on that 
they're not in use anymore, but you can visit them and they're absolutely extraordinary looking places. It sounds amazing. And before we leave the, the topic of, of your castle, is it true or is it urban legend that Mary Shelley was inspired to, to write Frankenstein while staying there? No, that's not the same place. The oh. place that you're talking about is um, a villa in uh, the sort of Beverly Hills area of Geneva called Cologny. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, Cologny, there was a villa called the Villa Diodati. In 1816, Lord Byron rented that place, and that's where. Shelley, Mary Shelley, and her half-sister, Claire Claremont, joined Byron and his doctor, Polidori. And over a famous stormy summer night, there was a challenge issued among all the participants as to who could write the better horror story, as it were. And Mary Shelley was the only one to stick with the project and she wrote Frankenstein and situated, you know, the, in the, the vicinity and the Alps and the, the whole, all their experiences in Switzerland were uh, used in the novel and the novel is immortal. And my father, at the end of the war, with my mother, they uh, leased the place and so in my, you know, I was a very small boy then, and it was an enchanting place, and it still had the fabrics on the walls that the poet had chosen um, himself. Wow. Um, subsequently, it was sold to some people who gutted it, and uh, so nothing remains of the original uh, except the outer walls, you know, of the, of the original structure, sadly, because there was no historical protection until much too late in Switzerland. Here's another 90-degree turn. I want to go back because just last week I watched Barbarella again, just because every few years I like to watch Barbarella. And in it is Anita Pallenberg. She was Brian Jones' girlfriend before taking off with Keith Richards, and they were together for... 10, 13 years, something like that, right? You knew Anita. You said that you dated her briefly. There are stories that she was a fairly serious practitioner of the quote-unquote dark arts. Now, was that more of a fashion statement, or was she really into some esoteric practices? Not really. I mean, it's it's a bit of a, it's a bit, I think that when people say that, they, they believe they believe uh, they mix her up with the character she played in performance. Mm-hmm. You know, she's preparing kind of witchcraft type of thing. But she was, uh, she was fairly, she wasn't versed in the, in the dark arts at all. You know, we were, there was a man whom I've known since I was 17 years old, who's still alive, and who's that marvelous uh, figure, Kenneth Anger, the, the underground film. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth Anger, um, Kenneth Anger, when he was around with the, with the stones and so on, 
would try to. At the time, I had no interest. So he gave me a number of books on Crowley and so on. And um, I don't think any of, nobody took all that seriously. He distributed the text of uh, Crowley that he had, had printed called Atlantis. And um, I don't remember anybody really being that interested in that sort of thing. We were much more interested in different, in how, uh, yes, magic was very much uh, there, but ceremonial magic occupied too much of, you know, there was too much of learning of barbaric words and performing things according to a certain standard. I think what has become known as chaos magic was what people naturally drifted towards to see how you could use uh, the force of sex uh, to affect uh, certain changes and so on. So you, you're referring more to the drift toward, what was later cruelly, the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis, some of the well, Genesis P. Orage? No. No, well, Genesis P. Orridge, I, I never, I always sort of, I was never interested in anything to do with them. Uh, but no, this is, this is a, a whole other thing. Uh, there was, what I'm saying is that Kenneth attempted to get people far more interested than they actually were in those things. I mean, Nick did contribute a move soundtrack to, to one of Kenneth's uh, films. There was an interest in the visual aspects of Kenneth's work. We used to have, you know, the, the big thing before video was if you were affluent, you had a 16 mil projector. And instead of having videos, the luxury was to have prints of films and to screen them. That was the case at Robert Fraser's house, uh, apartment. Uh, was at Paul McCartney's house, etc. You know, there were sound 16 mil projectors and small library of actual prints, of film prints in 16. Years later, though, you got into and found an interest in alchemy. In fact, you wrote a couple of books, Alchemy, the Secret Art, and what was the other one titled? The Golden Game. But the I Golden Game. Was, that was an interest I had from childhood onwards. Okay. I developed it and didn't publish uh, until many years later. I came back from India in uh, the, the tail end of 68 with the conviction that I wanted to do something about a very famous alchemical manuscript called uh, the Splendor Solis. As a result, I went to see very good friend of my father, the, the Franco-Swiss publisher, Albert Schirat, who decided to do this book with me in the hope of luring my father to, to illustrate a book for him. And so I went to London, armed with these credentials, met the late, wonderful, keeper of manuscripts at the British Museum, because the British Library was at the time at the British Museum, a man called Derek Turner. And Derek Turner sent me to Thames and Hudson, uh, who were fascinated by the connection with Skira, 
fascinated by this ambitious project to do a facsimile and companion volume of uh, the Splendor Solis thing. Mm. But in the meantime, they had inaugurated a new series called The Art and Imagination. They said, we would like to commission you to do the alchemy book. And I accepted immediately because it would give me the credentials to go into all these research libraries, not only in England, but all over Europe. And, and that's how I compiled two versions of the book, one in English for Thames and Hudson, and one, instead of having it translated into French, I rewrote the whole thing into French, a completely different text uh, for the Editions du Seuil in Paris, which was published, uh, the, the first book was done in 73, the second, uh, the, the French version came out in 74. During that time, I hung out with one of the foremost alchemical practitioners in the world. Eugène Cancelier was Foucanelli's disciple and uh, learned a tremendous amount. And indeed, Dems uh, and Hudson asked me to do a, a book about engravings in alchemical literature of the 17th century. And I ended up, uh, it took 10 years from signature of the contract to the actual book being issued in 88. And uh, uh, that was this famous golden game, which is uh, almost unfindable. It always is. Oh, I know. I went looking for it a few days ago. I ordered your other book, but I could not find that one. Well, it's very, it's available, but it's people to hold on to it and sell it for outrageous amounts of money. You also happen to write the introduction for a former guest, last week's episode, Lee McCluskey's great book on tarot that took 17 years to complete. Um, Lee McCluskey is my best friend in, in, uh, in this country. And uh, he is somebody that is one of the few people I, I can talk to on a level that uh, very few people can uh, follow. Lee was amazed to, to come to a party in the early 90s and was talking to somebody and he was saying uh, uh, Stanislas and so on. And so this person said, who? And, and Lee was amazed but that they were talking, well, this is, this is his place, you mean Star? <laughs> yes, well, I didn't know he was interested. Somebody who knew me very well said, uh, oh, I never knew he was interested in alchemy. And, uh, and Lee was shocked that there was such a, a difference between the overt and I, I explained that I had always preferred to wear the mask of the Playboy Prince as opposed to trying to come forth as, as some sort of scholar and all that. I didn't think it was, uh, it was something that you should wear on your sleeve, but rather keep it to yourself because otherwise you'd be challenged by people who knew nothing about these types of subjects and it got rather tedious. So it was better to be thought of as just a libertine as opposed to some sort of... 
Reminds me of another quote of yours that I earmarked here. When you're talking about your time back with, with these global bands, and you say success on an unparalleled scale rewarded them with all the material trappings. But in a way, it was treated as a bit of a joke. And there was constantly a worry and a quest. Everyone sought a transcendental way to a paradise of some kind. There was this thirst of the soul. That's a great quote. And, and it makes me wonder if what you were just saying about sort of hiding behind your libertine cloak there, would you say that that was something that your, your mates back then were, were doing as well and that they were doing some exploring behind the scenes? There was a lot of that, but it wasn't overt. Mm -hmm. We would talk very seriously. There was these fascinating conversations I'd have with Brian would record our conversations and so on. Uh, George Harrison was another person who was fascinated by the, those type of things and talked at great, uh, you know, uh, he liked uh, more um, Eastern esotericism and so on. But I went through this whole transition, if you will, brought about by the psychedelic, uh, the influence of psychedelics, which uh, gave rise to this very uh, deep esoterical thirst and led me in uh, late 67 to say that I wouldn't tour. I was on the, I wouldn't sign this important contract with a new band to front a new band as the lead singer. And I wanted to go the way of the white clouds. I'd read uh, Lama Anagarika Govinda's book. And at the same time, this thirst and this angst, this existential angst had inspired me to write a letter to a, an Indian uh, guru in the Punjab called Maharaj Charan Singh, who uh, wrote back uh, in longhand and said, come to see me immediately. And, he, and so I went, if you will, I decided I would go and spend uh, New Year's Eve with some friends, uh, the filmmaker Nigel Nesmore Gordon and his wife and Sid Barrett and his girlfriend, Sid Barrett from the founder and leader of uh, Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would all go and spend the transition 67 to 68 at their, this farm in the, in the Black Hills of Wales and the Black Mountains of Wales. And so we went there, had this extraordinary psychedelic trip of which Sid Barrett never came down. And that was very much a story like out of uh, one of the most bizarre episodes that I ever witnessed in my life. And um, it's very hard to describe, but it was, it was amazing because it's when, uh, other dimensions come, which you can best describe as, a, as a magical dimensions of the imagination, take the place of superimpose themselves on so-called objective reality. And that's what happened. And that's how, and Sid Barrett got lost in an extraordinary sort of nursery and his mind remained there 
Did you end up ever having conversations with Sid in the months or years later about that experience? Never saw him again. Really? Never saw him again. And I always deplored the fact that in order to rescue Sid, it would have been necessary, a bit like in Luis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, to get all the players back at the same place and go back to that place and actually rescue that part of himself that had remained behind. It makes no sense at all. And I mean, you know, when I told that story, they said to a BBC interviewer, they said, oh, the Sash is barking mad. But, uh, you know, you laugh it off. People will say you're barking mad at saying these type of things. But it is, there's more, you know, there's a lot... There's a lot more there than people suspect. You have to have experienced it. That is certainly one of the things that you can learn. Psychedelics and altered states of awareness, there are things that you can learn about intellectually and academically, but you certainly have to experience it to be able to understand the potential that you're talking about. And I'm sorry, I, I veered off a little bit on uh, Lee McCloskey's, uh, you know, he, uh, they asked me to come uh, and do a talk about alchemy. And I finally conceded after refusing to do so. And then I, the preoccupation was, how do I get out of this? My God, it's going to be awful. I'm going to be talking to these dreadful new age people and so on. And uh, then Lee called me and we had the most amazing conversation. As I say, it's one of the few people one can have those type of esoterical conversations with. And uh, we became, uh, I went to to see him, we spoke the same language, and my conversation uh, on alchemy in a group of people that had people as fascinating as Gary Lackman, Gary Lackman being the author of many, many books, who was, of course, uh, uh, a founding member of Blondie, you know, the guitar player in Blondie, Gary Vallon. And uh, Gary Lackman is extremely well-versed. So that set the stage, and I started to go to meetings at Lee McCloskey's house. And uh, I was interested in his work, and together we we managed to kindle a flame that led him to complete his uh, revision of the Tarot Arcana, and then he asked me to write the, this preface to his book, which, which is what I did, telling the story uh, of how we met and why. And we, to this day, he's the person that I speak to every other day, and we, uh, even in the present circumstances of isolation, we, we meet on Zoom with a group of people, we read texts, and we do all sorts of things. I'm going to zigzag back to psychedelics for just a second. You were offered, as you said, you were offered multiple positions, uh, you know, to lead bands, to be a huge band in Paris. You were actually offered the chance to be the leader of the Monkees in the Monkees television show, the the position that I think uh, Davy Jones ended up taking, correct? But instead, instead of doing that, you chose to go down this, this path of wisdom. 
but there was a price that you paid for that. That's because at the time, at the time, you know, they had uh, Bob Ravelson and Bert Snyder were very good friends who used to come to my uh, leased mansion and on the edge of Beverly Hills at uh, St. Ives Drive above Doheny, which was a rendezvous of all the mid-60s freaks and musicians in uh, Los Angeles, including bands, you know, all the bands, Love and Birds and and so on and so forth. Everyone used to come there. Oh, Love was a great band. I haven't thought of them in a while. I have, I have their records. Love. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back into that one today. If you guys haven't listened to Love, not a band that you hear about a lot, but go check them out. Find them streaming, digital, whatever. If you can find some vinyl, even better. Lee was a marvelous, uh, marvelous man, great musician, great friend. And, uh, and so was Brian McNeil, McLean. And uh, anyway, they, they said, listen, we've got this amazing project on TV. It'll be like Hard Day's Night every week. Mm-hmm. And so I looked forward to reading the scripted for the pilot when they gave it to me i was hugely disappointed that disappointment and the fact that i was so young still you know i was not yet i was still not 23 at that time and i thought oh no you have to sign this contract for exclusive contract for two years and i really doubted whether the 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 monkeys would ever get on the air because i thought that it was so it, it wasn't very, it was so bad compared to what <laughs> I'd expected. So, you know, when it became hugely successful, I wondered whether I'd made a mistake or not. But in the end, it, I, was, I was well out of it, you know, not having accepted it. And I, because I went on to do a number of other things before taking off. Uh, you know, two years later, having, you know, this this huge, uh, so many things happened, you know, that are tumble one thing into the other. Uh, so many things had happened before this uh, this happened. I was in Jodorowsky's Topor uh, and Rabal, this happening at the Centre uh, American in Paris, uh, which was a huge uh, cultural uh, theatrical event, which was filmed by Ina. Um, and it was a lot of things, contributions that each and every one of us made uh, to Jodorowsky's piece became uh, elements that he used in his movies. And he's still producing to this day. Yeah. It's incredible. His graphic novels. I don't know if you've jumped into those at all, but he's producing uh, a a series on humanoid. I've been collecting them over the years. Wonderful stuff. What a, what a, I would, can I get him on this podcast? (laughs) What a genius. I'm a big fan, big fan. You also had some tough times though, because you know, you're doing psychedelics back then. You're going to get arrested now and then when you're hanging out with such high profile people. Which yes, of course, we got, when we got arrested in '67, it was completely it was a deliberate ploy to attempt to destroy the Rolling Stones, considered to be a menace to society, and therefore we weren't. Uh, it wasn't because we had drugs. Mm-hmm. It was we were arrested on completely trumped-up charges, and the only drugs they found were either traces of 
unusable substances mm-hmm. or uh, stuff that they, the, the drug squad had actually planted while Brian Jones and I were at uh, the Camden Festival for the premiere of, uh, of Volker Schlendorf's A Degree of Murder, the film Anita had started at the time. We came back, Mick and Keith were, uh, the day we were arrested, Mick and Keith were on the front page of the papers having a trial in Chichester. The establishment had deemed that, that if they got, if they netted Brian Jones as well, that would be the end of the Rolling Stones and the menace to society would be put to rest. The Rolling Stones would cease to exist. Every, all these louts would go to jail. And the raid that netted me as well was unfortunate for them because we managed to prove that the charges were, you know, unsustainable. And indeed, they, uh, after a lengthy weeks of uh, being stuck and losing uh, work and having all sorts of problems and yet having also a marvelous time at the same time uh, with the Beatles and everybody who came to my rescue. Uh, when they dropped, eventually dropped all charges against me and sadly, Brian Jones would be uh, imbibing uh, tranquilizers of the, the kind of mandrakes and Quaaludes. And had the, you know, in order to quell his own, uh, his own paranoia about all that, he ended up being brainwashed into pleading guilty, which was a fatal, fatal mistake because he was pleading guilty to charges he was completely innocent of, and it ruined the rest of his life. And, right, he uh, couldn't know, travel after that, correct? Out of the country to perform. That was the mistake. Well, no, he couldn't. Well, he could travel, but he couldn't get... Uh, subsequently, after his conviction, he couldn't get... He wouldn't have gotten a, a working visa. And in any case, he sadly uh, became much more erratic and um, he couldn't really count on him anymore. And uh, yes, he had moments of utter brilliance still as a musician, but he wouldn't show up for, for sessions and the rest of it. And it soon became apparent that both physically, mentally, psychically, and legally, worst of all, he wouldn't be able to go on as a member of the band. So they had, it was not a sadistic decision. It was a necessary survival decision. And that's one of the things that a lot of the fans uh, reproach to the current band is that they replace Brian Jones. But I mean, what do you do? Right. So it came, sounds like that pleading guilty created further isolation at a time when he really needed to be closer to the people who could, could help guide him. Pleading guilty was letting down the, letting down the side in a, the worst possible way you could imagine. And at that time, Paul McCartney did you something of a solid, of a favor, did he not, letting you stay with him? Yes, at the time when immediately in the aftermath of the... I was staying at... Uh, when this bust happened, 
I had been on my way to America to do a film uh, with my current fiancée, Romina Power, who is still to this day a massive star, and the daughter of Tyrone Power mm-hmm. and Linda Christian. And she was, um, we had the press sort of, uh, uh, her mother had semi-jokingly said that her daughter was engaged to marry me. And the press called and said, is it true you're going to marry from here, Power? That was in October of 66. And I said, why not? You know, and this <laughs> why not went round the world. And oddly enough, in those days, we weren't crucified, you know, despite the, this, I was uh, nine years older than her. And that wasn't held against me at all. And uh, people were rather, were very tolerant of this. And we became a very, very public figures. And no, nobody raised the specter of uh, this dreadful uh, modern age of, you know, oh, she's way too young and this, all, all that kind of thing. We were here, folk heroes. Nine years is nothing. So this is, I'm going to, I'm going to, Give a little shout out, a little love to one of my dearest friends in the world, Ty Powers Seif, who happens to be the niece of Romina in such a small world news. And Ty actually remembers you, remembers visiting your Malibu home several times as a child. Um, fond memories of you. And I just blew my mind yesterday when I found out there was a connection between my nearest and dearest and, and you. Yes, Romina and I, Ty's uh, mother, Karen, Romina and I got her out of school in the 60s in the wake of my having been very publicly busted with Brian and so on. We went to see, we, we took Taryn and went to see the monkeys and all that and, ah. and uh, and went to Paul McCartney's house, and uh, Paul McCartney turned Darren on, and so on. You know, it was it was an amazing thing. And Paul McCartney, indeed, when when I, in the aftermath of the bus, we were staying at the Hilton. I was wondering what I was going to do since they'd seized my passport. I couldn't report for work in Hollywood, and I couldn't turn to my family, and so on. And Paul called, and I said, "Well, Brian's not here." I said, "I'm not calling Brian." I'm you and um, uh, I want to know how you are and I'm sending my car and driver to pick you up back your bags you're coming to live with me and if they want to bust you again they'll have to arrest me as well and that's how I ended up under the the Beatles wing and working with them and doing a whole bunch of things it was a fascinating time despite all the trouble when do we get to see your memoir you, you have to write a memoir. Is that something that's going on? Is that in the works? I have written a lot of it. It's been one of those things, you know, on, on occasion there's been people who've come to see me and have tried to accelerate the process saying they had a deal. And the deal turned out that somebody wanted to have, uh, they weren't interested in what uh, the deeper thoughts that one may have on various subjects what they were interested in was a celebrity gossip type of right uh, right and well and i was uh, disgusted with the idea so i shelved it many times and like penelope 
Ulysses' uh, wife awaiting her lost husband, you know, who's on the Odysseus. Uh, she's to keep the suitors at bay, she weaves a tapestry which she undoes at night. And that's been my, my, a little bit my thing with this memoir. I've been uh, tearing it to shreds and thinking, well, I should redo this like that and like that. But, you know, because you, you want it to, to have a little more substance than your average uh, sort of popcorn type of book. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm here to tell you to get it done. That's, I get this podcast from you, which I get to use for the Super Nice Club. The reciprocity here is that I'm nudging you to get that memoir done. Hmm. And we're unweaving. I must say you're not. You're in a long line of people who want to see it done. I have to to kind of uh, force myself into that mode. You know, I'm not always feeling like uh, in a reminiscing mode, but I should just, you know, jot down all the anecdotes and pretty soon you, you have a you have a book and you can tie it up, you know. We ask of our wonderful guests each week as we, as we close the podcast episode, we ask that they issue the Super Nice Challenge. And what that is, is just a challenge to Super Nice Club members around the world, something small that they can do each day, ideally, or just once to make their world and the world a little bit better place, a little bit nicer place. Do you have any such challenge for the members? Well, the challenge is to, to you know, it's so easy to drift uh, by life on automatic. Mm-hmm. And there is an ancient technique which uh, Gurdjieff Gregory Ivanovich Gurdjieff revived, which is this idea that if you say to yourself, I am conscious, you know, at that moment you are conscious. So uh, the idea is using the, the breath and breathing in this I, which isn't the, the ego I, but the I, the, the vertical I, the greater part of of the greater self, as it were, I am, as you expire, and that challenge is a very good in this, in these challenged times, about the nature of what it is to be, rather than what it is you do. You know, too much is uh, uh, confused about. You know, people ask you, "What do you do?" you know, as if that were a way of determining who you are. Mm-hmm. And that is not at all the way that who you, who you are is a question that each and every one can ask themselves. And the reply to who you are is, I am that I am. So uh, this I am is quite an, an interesting, easy challenge to wake up to uh, the greater part of oneself, as it Nothing religious, nothing. No. Uh, now, is that something that you do when you wake up each morning? Is it part of your, is it baked into your routine? Well, I thought, you know, uh, I, I was initiated in India with a number of uh, 
techniques, which is, you know, unlike the New Age's version that you can self-initiate, makes me laugh because initiations are like having credit cards that are activated and you can actually draw purchase with. I defy you to receive a, a credit card from a bank and use it if it's not activated. This is the same thing with uh, with these mantras. You can't, you know, they talk about chakras and souls and mantras and all these things. And these things are dead words unless they're made living words. Okay. Challenge accepted, first of all. Wisdom heard. And let's wrap this with... My least favorite part of the episode, but I think it's kind of fun for the the guest, which is you get to ask me a question, any question, and I will just respond. I won't edit any of my response out. I'll just let it go. Ask you a question. Yep. Do you know who you are? I don't. No, I don't. And I thoroughly enjoy the not knowing, the, the curiosity of it, the exploration of it each day. I kind of hope to not know. I probably answered incorrectly, but it's fun not knowing who I am. That's exactly <laughs> correct. Uh, the right answer because uh, people have illusions as to who they are. You know, I feel like for, for some time now, I felt that perhaps we all wake up a slightly different person every single day. You know, and that, uh, we, we sleep are, and we sort true. never the same person twice. And uh, it depends. Uh, and as we bounce off each other, we are different people to everybody mm-hmm. else. So you get to know an aspect of myself that nobody else has uncovered. That's why it's impossible to be bored, this, this unknowing. It's a yeah. constant, endless, fascinating, not always pleasant quest. And I love it. I'll tell, I'll tell you one more thing. Okay. Um, I met uh, many years ago, over 50 years ago, I had this magnificent uh, sports car, and in it was the then extraordinary new technology of having an 8-track player. And my, on, on my 8-track player blasting out of the four beautiful speakers was Ravi, uh, Ravi Shankar mm-hmm. Raga's. And so I was in the Swiss Alps, and I went to a place in a, a near a, play, a village called Sanen. I went to listen to Krishnamurti, who was uh, giving this very inspiring talk. After the talk, I went for a walk in the forest and came face to face with Krishnamurti in the forest. And we looked at each other for a long time in the eyes. And he said to me, you know too much. Stop. Now you start, you see. It was, it was freedom from the known, as it were, which is one of his books, yeah, which is exactly what you expressed. You met Krishnamurti in the forest. That's, that's a great story. Hmm. And as shallow as I am, I also am deeply interested in knowing what kind of sports car was it? It was a, it was a 69 Corvette. Oh, wow. 
You know, right. My first car was a 69 Pontiac Le Mans, not nearly as sexy as that, but it did have an eight track player in the glove box that right. would perfectly chew any eight track that you managed to find at a thrift store and put it in there. Yeah, it was, it was a devourer of musical souls, that eight track. Okay, Prince Dash, thank you so much for, for talking with me, for humoring my, my questions that veered and zigged and zagged. Wonderful to have you on. Wonderful to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. And there you have it, ladies and gents, gents and ladies, the amazing Stash Darola. Now hang out for just a second and you'll get to hear two musical tracks that Stash is working on right now. These are in progress, incomplete tracks, but he's sharing them with you to give you a taste, to give you flavor. And I love them. So also, I've had further communications with Stash and I have to tell you, I'd love to meet this guy one of these days. Here in his castle, maybe both, sit with him in Lima Klusky just listen in as they explore the mysteries. I'm really only saying this to you right now in hopes that both of these champions are listening in. I'm pretty much inviting myself to their party, right? Kind of amateur hour of me, but I've been playing, I've been playing the fool since, since day one. In fact, can you see this? No, you can't see this. I have an Aleph tattooed on me. Right here, I'll scratch it so you can kind of hear it. You hear that shape? As a permanent reminder. Anyway, thanks for listening. I love you wherever whenever, whoever you are. And, uh, oh, if you want to subscribe or be part of the Super Nice Club, please do that. Just find us online or in the social media spaces that are owned by anti-human demons. <laughs> if anyone out there knows Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos and can get them on this podcast, I would love to discuss with them their views on the collective human soul and to dive into their yearning for that which they do not have. All giants fall, Mark, Jeff, every single one. Money is not power. Anyway, I digress. Stay nice, everyone. And here is some amazing, beautiful music by Stash DeRolla. See you next week.